Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is a New Year's special, taking a look back over 2017 and dangerously making some predictions about what 2018 might hold. I'm joined on the panel by Lucy Fisher, Senior Political Correspondent of The Times, Tim Shipman, Political Editor of The Sunday Times, and author of the new book, Fallout, giving the insider's guide of what happened during Theresa May's second terrible 12 months in uh, power, and Tom McTague, <laughs> Chief UK Political Correspondent for Politico and co-author of the brilliant Betting the House which gives the insiders got on what exactly what happened during the election campaign, both uh, Labour and Tories. So we've got a good panel here to try and unpick what went on in 2017. Let's start with you, Tom. What has been your highlight or the thing that, I mean, particularly when you were researching your book, what sticks in your mind is the sort of memorable thing from this year? I think it's got to be nothing has changed uh, up, in, up in Wales. I mean, Tim and I will have had uh, similar tales when we were researching uh, the books. Uh, and it was just an extraordinary moment which captured how everything just unraveled in what was it sort of 48 hours 72 hours um, from when the manifesto was launched and uh, then the Sunday papers dropped and it was chaos and then on Monday Downing Street staff went up to Wales to Wrexham and they didn't know what was going to happen and then suddenly they saw sort of in shock as Theresa May uh, announces a U-turn uh, rips up a strong and stable message and then says nothing has changed and everything had changed. <laughs> well, Apart from uh, the Prime Minister's inability to communicate, which was the, what that uh, incident illustrated. I mean, it was uh, probably uh, similar for me. I mean, uh, it's quite hard to get past the exit poll as the, the sort of... Uh, uh, key moment of the year, but uh, I, I think nothing has changed. Was where we saw um, the real Theresa May that the public had uh, not seen, and Tory MPs and journalists had seen for 15 years. Um, and the scales fell from the public's eyes at that point. What about you, Lucy? Well, I think on the flip side, uh, as well as uh, all, all the pundits, uh, probably most of us around this table uh, included, uh, being completely confounded by how badly the Conservatives did, it's really how well Jeremy Corbyn uh, and Labour uh, and its left-wing platform did in the snap election this year. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm very surprised, uh, or I would have been in January this year, to imagine that Jeremy Corbyn would still be leading the Labour Party, um, that he would have got so many votes, um, and that topics such as renationalisation of um, key utilities, rail, mail, um, would prove to be f- policies that are now kind of in the mainstream of political debate. It is sort of extraordinary if you think back to the beginning of the year and Theresa May was launching, when I went back through some of the stuff they reported at the time, the shared society at the beginning of the year. It was another very dull speech 
burning injustice and all of that. And it was just all part of her new way of governing, not giving away too much. While Jeremy Corbyn was planning another relaunch, it was being likened to the Donald Trump strategy, doubling down on everything that went wrong. I mean, oh, how we laugh, but it all sort of played off. Yeah, I think I think that's um, that, that's right. And also this year, I've just been interested that we've had the, you know the return of two-party politics with the complete demise, really, of UKIP, the nth leadership <laughs> contest in 18 what months. What are the highlights of the year? Surely the demise of UKIP. Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, I followed them around on the, on the campaign. Uh, I think it was the ban on the face veil that led to um, heckles at Paul Nuttall, then leader, asking him whether beekeeper masks and bridal veils would be included in this. Lock, uh, locked in a toilet, I remember, policy. over there on the in the hotel on the other side of Westminster Bridge, that, scared to come out to, to face the journalists. That's absolutely it, Tom. He, um, he called a press conference to uh, launch UKIP's uh, election campaign but refused to say uh, if he'd be standing himself <laughs> or where and, and yes as you say backed himself into a lavatory very very clever. There were so many quotes of the year from Paul Nuttall but one of my favourite being when he was being challenged on uh, his claims to have lost close friends at Hillsborough he, he went on TV and said, I haven't been caught in a paedophile gang or anything. Just well, on the upside. <laughs> Which is something. The bar is getting lower and lower and lower <laughs> as to what constitutes competent politics. And it, what, what, what about that? The fact that you sort of look across all the parties, and although Jeremy Corbyn did much better than he expected, he still, did, you know, still didn't win, and he, no one could claim that his front bench team are you know, a Rolls-Royce operation about to sweep into white. What about the sort of state of politicians? And- well, this is where I'm going to pull the, the old git card. Um, as someone who's <laughs> been doing this for 16 years, I have never seen such a poor array of front benches on all sides in all of that time. I think um, it's absolutely staggering uh, the degree to which competent politics has just disappeared. Um, and you talk about, you know, Theresa May and all her slogans. A lot of that positioning was very clever. It put her in a place where she had got a 20-point lead. But the problem was there was no substance to it. And we saw that um, at the party conference speech a year ago. We saw it um, throughout the summer. The other thing I learned when researching this book was that there was something called the Plan for Britain, which was a terribly important piece of <laughs> Theresa May positioning, which no political journalist, MP or member of the public had ever heard of. Well, I... I, I'm going to take exception. The, the only thing I remember about it is the plan for Britain when it was launched. The website didn't work. And so it came up with planforbritain.org isn't working. Yeah, well, it, it, the website didn't work. And the same day, George Osborne was made editor of the Evening Standard newspaper. And, uh, you know, uh, news has a way of uh, driving non-news out of the headlines. So before we look ahead to what the new year might hold for Theresa May, I, I just wanted to focus a bit on, because what comes through in both of your books is how Theresa May became Prime Minister and the role of Nick, Timothy and Fiona Hill in that. Because there is this sense that, uh, well, some people almost talk about her being like a hostage or, you know, a, a puppet, and they were the ones pulling the strings. How significant do you think that is? And is it actually a bit of a cop-out for her? Because ultimately she's a grown adult and she's the Prime Minister. I think it's a total cop-out, but it, it, it is nevertheless true. You know, that she somebody said that she's essentially uh, not a very confident person and she needed their strength of character and their sort of intellectual confidence to rest on. Nick Timothy's vision for what, you know, how to sort of create uh, something out of the Brexit chaos and he had that clear vision and she backed it, you know, if there was an author of uh, Hard Brexit it was Nick Timothy and then Fiona who could deal with the press and she hated to deal with the press and she had the ability, you know, manipulative and all the rest but to deal with it. Uh, and now we're seeing with with her with both neither of those guys there um, her sort of inability to uh, to communicate to uh, see where she wants to go 
so yeah, I think uh, they came as a package. They were almost co-prime ministers. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And and you know, people say who was to blame for the election mess? Well, you can blame Nick Timothy, you can blame Linton Crosby if you like, but there's one person to blame, and that's the person in charge. She's the one who appointed them. She's the one who let them behave in the way that she did, um, and she was the one who uh, had the ability to um, change the strategy, which uh, they all knew was not working towards the end of that campaign. And one of the uh, Australian consultants said to me that they have fought you know X number of elections and never before has the principal not sort of lost their rag and said this isn't good enough we've got to change this even mild-mannered people that they've dealt with in the past have done that and at no point in that campaign did Theresa May do it Um, and what we've seen since Nick and Fiona left Downing Street is that she's now being told what to do and say by senior members of the civil service by Oliver Robbins by Jeremy Haywood and by some of the new people that she's employed politically but there's still a great sense when you talk to cabinet ministers that they still have no idea what she thinks and what she's really trying to achieve um, and dressing it up in a series of slogans still has no substance. Yeah I think um, just picking up on Tim's point of what, what we've seen before and, and after the election I mean to my mind without Nick and Fiona there's really a dearth of mission an overarching narrative of what number 10 is about what this prime minister wants to achieve and you really see that that now um, which just goes to show that it really it really was those two driving the show. And, of course, now she's got competent people. She's got Robbie Gibb kind of running the media side of things. She's got Gavin Barwell um, as her chief of staff. By all, by all accounts, he's a much more personable figure. Backbenchers prefer dealing with him. He's a competent diary manager, keeping the Prime Minister running day to day. But you just don't have that sense of, you know, what is she about? What does she really want to get out? But the criticism of, of those new guys is that they're not political enough and that mm-hmm. they don't have that driving sense of mission that, that Nick particularly had um, and the desire to to big up Teresa that uh, Fiona had, and I think she's sorely missing both of them, to be honest. I think a key question is, um, I don't know if anyone has any insight into it, is, is, is the extent to which she is in contact with either? Well, she's certainly in, in some social contact with them, um, and uh, Nick has various ways of feeding in ideas. Um, you saw Chris Wilkins was the chap who wrote the, uh, the conference speech this year. Well, Nick and Chris have been writing speeches together for, for ages. It's inconceivable that Nick didn't have some input into that. Um, but I think they're all conscious that they have to be careful and not be seen together, and, and uh, I think there's a situation probably where if she's asked a straight question about whether she's met them, she would be able to say that she hadn't, but um, there's certainly contact, and certainly through intermediaries. I was I was told uh, one story which I thought was illustrative of this point, um, where Michael Gove had made clear to Nick Timothy, who they, they bizarrely sort of they, they don't hate each other, they sort of respect each other in a, in a in a strange way, that he wanted the environment secretary job, and strangely enough, when the reshuffle came after the election, he got that job. He sees that that was a you know he's one of the guys with the vision. He knows that that's a huge job uh, in this new cabinet. But how that was relayed back to Theresa May, if it wasn't through Nick Timothy, Tim might know. But I you know I think that that shows that there is some connection there. And of course, Nick Timothy's writing all these articles in newspapers now uh, with his Wizzo idea as to how the Tories should uh, go forward to, to, to win a future election. If only he'd thought of some of these uh, before Jude. Well, again, a lot of them are things that he was pushing, but that some of them involve um, sort of generalities without specific policies. I mean, the classic example, um, the, the policy that Nick came up with before the election to slash stamp duty for first-time buyers was ditched as far too bold during the, the election campaign, but it was precisely the kind of retail offer that they needed and they ended up doing it in the budget this autumn.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what happens now then, looking ahead? There is this sort of slight, so we are now in, let's talk about Brexit. We're, we're now talking about the end state, or certainly the transition period, implementation period, and then the end state. Is part of the problem with Theresa May not having a vision that the, the Brexit that she's pursuing is essentially the one that's halfway between Boris Johnson and Philip Hammond, rather than having any clear ideas to what she wants herself? Well, she's still going back to the sort of what they call the foundational texts, which are the speeches <laughs> written by Nick Timothy, which is, you know, actually you can make the case that there hasn't been that much that has changed since her first conference speech, then into Lancaster House and then into Florence. There is a sort of seam throughout. And I think there was a moment last week in the Commons where I think it was Edward Lee, who I think has a bizarre knack of getting the right answer out of Theresa May by answering a sort of asking a simple question, which was, will Parliament have full regulatory autonomy after Brexit? And she said, well, that's the whole point. And that was her sort of very clear sort of <laughs> outlook. She can't see beyond that. You ask her about hard and soft Brexit, and she just doesn't know how to answer. But you ask her that question. So I, I think she is going back and, and, and resting on what uh, Chris and Nick Timothy wrote for her um, what uh, six months ago. Well, more than that. I mean, I think, you know, it was all in September um, 2016, mm-hmm. um, and leaving the customs union, leaving the single market and leaving the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice were all decided basically on the back of an envelope by uh, Nick Timothy and Theresa May back that autumn and nothing much has changed since then. Um, but this policy of kind of, uh, if it were Labour, we'd call it constructive ambiguity and it certainly has been, I think, deliberate on Labour's part to remain ambiguous about this. Uh, with with Theresa May, you're never sure whether it's constructive ambiguity or simply ambiguity. Um, <laughs> but it has served her reasonably well. What she's done is persuade most of the Remainers to accept that we're leaving the single market, the customs union and the ECJ. And she's persuaded the Brexiteers that there'll be a two-year transition and that we'll pay a significant sum of money um, when we're on the way out. But we are reaching the point where ambiguity will only get you so far. I actually think there's a reasonable amount of agreement in the Cabinet that we will be able to diverge and we will certainly have to ask for that. Um, but the more significant of the negotiations is not the one going on in the cabinet it's whatever the 27 other countries come up with and lucy tim touched on their labor's position on brexit which some front benches still say we've been very clear almost with a straight face uh while having not been clear at all is that do you think they can just get away with that throughout 2018 as well do they ever have to nail down what they would be doing or is it just a case of reacting to and criticizing what the government's doing i think people around jeremy corbyn think that this policy of constructive ambiguity is still working quite well for them. Um, of course, it's all about trying to keep um, both sides uh, of, of, of their um, coalition of voters uh, on board with them, the sort of levers in the post-industrial kind of what you think of as traditional Labour heartlands and the more metropolitan, you know, ardent Remainers in London and other kind of urban uh, environments. Um, I think a key, a key sort of um, 
turning point coming up is going to be in May um, with the uh, council elections, bigger set of elections happening all across London uh, and elsewhere. And I think that's possibly a reason we've started to see Labour kind of tacking more towards a softer Brexit, firming up a sort of um, a view about staying in a reformed customs union, a customs union, the customs union. It's still <laughs> not exactly uh, clear at all um, what what they mean. But it's, it's, it's mood music. Um, they're talking um, about sort of being very relaxed about freedom of movement, relaxed about um, a level playing field. I think that there is a sort of, uh, there's been a shift in recent weeks, and that's probably to try and appeal to, to remain voters in cities ahead of those elections. And so what do you think 2018 will hold? What's, what, what, what do we expect? I mean, everyone hoped at the end of 2060 that 2017 might be a slightly calmer year. I'll start with you, Tom. What, what do you think 2018 will hold? In a way, I, th- uh, I think Theresa May uh, has a task in front of her that's quite well suited to her, bizarrely. So one Tory put it to me that she's, um, uh, she's terrible at the, uh, at the wedding night, but she's quite good at the marriage. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, good Lord. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think that... To a sense, she's going to carry that image with us for the rest of the year. <laughs> But this sort of boring, bureaucratic um, job that she has, just to read papers, make minute decisions constantly for, for, for the next 12 months, is quite well suited to her. It's terribly suited to people like David Davis and even and the Labour Party. So in some senses, I can almost imagine a good year for Theresa May and a, 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 the Labour Party sort of stuck in the mud, not knowing where to go, and this gravitational pull back towards being a sort of remainy soft Brexit party will cause them problems, potentially. Tim? I'm not finding a great deal to disagree with there, to be honest. I think it's going to be... It could, on one level, be grindingly dull. There's going to be an endless series of uh, EU negotiations at this end, at that end. Um, The interesting thing will be to see when it actually comes to a head. There's a lot of big talk about it all happening in the autumn. Uh, I think most people who've ever seen a European negotiation imagine that it might drag on a good deal longer than that. Um, But we've seen three spasms of Tory sort of... uh, coup plotting in the last few months, um, all of which have come to nothing. Um, And the question is whether Theresa May makes any more mistakes that are big enough to to get that going again. at the moment, it feels like everybody's rather weary of that, and that you know she may grind miserably on for another year or even two. Actually, the crucial thing, Lucy, is that whenever there is a spasm of oh no, she's made another cock up, whatever, there is no alternative. There is still no one else who's who's the alternative leadership candidate who the rest of the party could value at. I think that's right. Uh, and in a funny sort of way, when she comes to these crunch points like losing the vote uh, on a meaningful amendment uh, in the Commons um, earlier this month, uh, in a funny sort of way, that helps her in Brussels. You know, I think that's a sort of prompted that sort of, you know, fairly tepid, but nonetheless a standing ovation or whatever it was at the, at the dinner at the EU Council from the other 27 uh, European leaders kind of acknowledging how, how the battle she's faced domestically on several different battlefronts um, to get through uh, the to get the agreement about the divorce deal um, to principles we've got to so far. So I think that uh, as she will continue to face sort of wobbles, that will help her in the negotiations because certainly the EU27 don't want there to be uh, instability in the UK, don't want a change of leadership, certainly don't want to have to deal with Boris Johnson, who's, <laughs> who's sort of widely loathed uh, across the rest of the continent. So I think it will be she'll sort of she'll she'll wobble on, uh, and I think actually you know. The signals coming out of Brussels are that 
concern about UK divergence, you know, particularly the ability of UK to use state aid, make, make certain industries more competitive, I think has sent a sort of concerns, shockwaves through some countries, certainly that letter to, the, to, to Nissan about what Britain could do with the car industry here. I think that there is, there, it's not as pessimistic, my view of the, of the negotiations, what we could get in a trade deal. I think the EU will want to try and tie the UK in to more alignment, um, but I think there could be more movement on services that, that some people think. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic than, than some other pundits on what 2017, uh, 2018 holds. I think there's two other challenges for her, though. The first of which is that you know she's not great with people, and a lot of this negotiation, when it comes down to it at the end, will be about her going into a room and you know having to do a deal with Angela Merkel and, and uh, Emmanuel Macron in particular um, to try and get what we want. Um, you know the walk in the woods that some of the old sort of EU stages call it. The other the big challenge she's got is that she can't get through the next year without having a reshuffle and there's a big question about when she does that and how extensive it is and I think we'll learn a great deal from that about whether she is trying to groom people to come through behind her um, and, and envisages uh, stepping aside at some point or whether um, you know she has it in her mind to try and fight the next election. She is having to learn the art of negotiation. I remember um, Nick Clegg saying that when they were in coalition he would get he would have these meetings with her where he would restate his line and she would say no and then he'd, so he'd move a bit and she'd still say no and then he'd offer another concession she'd still say no and then he'd go back to David Cameron and say this is hopeless I keep trying to offer a concession she just keeps saying no and Cameron's just said oh thank goodness for that she's like that with me as well <laughs> <laughs> um, but she, she is going to have to change that style yeah and Clegg said to me once that he would go into a room with her to do one of those negotiations and he could see exactly where the compromise would be and he'd say well you're there and I'm here and this is where we're going to end up so let's just get on with it and she would say no no I have to see the papers <laughs> and weeks and weeks would go by with the agonising conversations of the like the one you've just outlined and then you know they would end up in exactly the place that Clegg thought they'd end up in but Theresa May couldn't sort of take the mental leap she had to go through all the go paperwork the and laboriously get to that point herself. In a, in a way she sounds less like a British Prime Minister and more like a European bureaucrat you know and that may serve her well you know they understand this sort of the, dull they, they quite like a list yeah just this, this is the process yeah, and yeah. she understands process she understands lists you know so that maybe they'll get on very well but that gets you nearly to the end it doesn't get you over the line you do the over the line is, is a bit of political give and take at the end so um, very quickly the reshuffle what do we expect if it came in the new year what do we expect who's in who's out Tom, make a wild prediction to be proved wrong almost instantly. I, I said this the other day. Tobias Elwood, I watch, I watch him on the front bench and he seems to just tell Boris Johnson what to say in yeah. the Foreign Office question. So I, 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 I sort of uh, I think he might, he might be in line for something, but I could be almost uh, certainly wrong. Brandon Lewis, party chairman, Dominic Raab in the cabinet, um, uh, Damien Hines, someone people don't know a great deal, probably in the cabinet, he's doing well at the Treasury, um, and uh, it would be uh, invidious to sack half, half of them, but I think we can all... We could all get rid of about half if we wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there um, she, there's no need to keep Andrea Leadsom in the cabinet any longer. I think people like Chris Grayling, she could probably afford to move. Um, get the problem is a lot of the really sort of uninspiring people are the closest friends of Theresa May. Um, <laughs> Karen, Karen Bradley, James Brokenshire, these are all undemonstrative. Well, if possibly, if oh, well, Brokenshire will almost certainly be promoted because um, he's been doing her bidding on. You know, he was the guy they used to send out of the Home Office to explain why the immigration figures had gone up again every single month. Um, so he's he'll be in line for something big. And on the big question, Hammond and Boris, do they both go? Do they both stay? 
I think it works quite nicely having them both there and forcing them to uh, to make the concessions. I, I just don't see what you gain from from moving. Um, well, you could get rid of. Well, we'd Hammond. gain. It'd be great fun for journalists. <laughs> but Boris, though, I mean, why, why would you put him onto uh, out of the cabinet? You you need to bind him in. It's the only it's the only way, as far as I can see. I think the best move for Boris would be to move and put him in as business secretary and give him a lot of extra Brexity type powers. Um, Boris doesn't see it that way. He thinks any uh, any move would be a demotion, and uh, I don't think Theresa May has got the uh, inclination or the strength to do it. So just before we finish, um, in case anyone's uh, still got Christmas shopping to do in the new year, or they've got uh, book tokens uh, for Christmas and want to know what to spend it on, your two the two of you, your, your juiciest little tidbits from your book that would persuade someone to go out and buy it. Start with you, Tom. Betting, betting the House, it's called. Betting the House. Uh, I don't suppose this isn't a, a juicy tip, but it sort of summed up the election for me, which was Tim Farron, who had had a disastrous <laughs> campaign, um, you know, and, uh, was dogged from the start from about questions of whether he thought gay sex was a sin, you know, that was within the first 24 hours. Um, he finished the campaign by avoiding the press pack outside of his house, climbing over his neighbour's garden fence and ripping, you know, ripping his trousers and going in the back and then sitting and watching the exit poll, uh, depressed with his wife. Um, and that summed up an election that uh, most people uh, felt. <laughs> Very good. I think the best bit of my book, Fallout, is probably the, the sort of week after the general election where, my God, did they plot uh, in every single conceivable fashion, uh, particularly after the Grenfell fire disaster. Theresa May is very, very lucky still to be here, I think. And Lucy, you've read loads of other political books this year. What's your, what's your top tip, apart from, obviously, uh, Fallout and Betting the House? What, what else stands out for you? Um, I definitely give a little plug to Phil Collins. Uh, when They Go Low, We Go High. Fantastic book on um, the art of rhetoric and speeches by um, Phil, who's obviously Tony Blair's former speechwriter. Uh, and I think um, following the uh, hashtag MeToo Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal that, you know, fell, uh, fell here in Westminster, um, I'd suggest Women and Power as a perfect antidote to kind of look at the silencing of women throughout the centuries all top tips thank you very much for that the podcast will turn as normal in the new year uh, along with the morning email which uh, i do manage to find and of course tim does on a sunday you can sign up for that at the times.co.uk forward slash red box and if you subscribe to the podcast on itunes on your android device future episodes will arrive automatically but thank you for listening throughout 2017 do recommend us to your friends for 2018 but my thanks to tom mctague tim shipman and lucy fisher and for me matt jolly it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.